What if you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious? Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome, everyone. I'm happy to be joined today by my good friend, Tim Galpin. Thanks for being with us, Tim. Sure, Kathy. No problem. Great. Uh, well, we, before we jump into the conversation, let me first introduce you to Tim. Tim Galpin is a best-selling author, senior lecturer of strategy and innovation, and academic director of the MBA program at Said Business School at the University of Oxford. Now, you may have already just noticed that Tim is not British, so perhaps we'll hear today how he made his way to Oxford. Um, Tim has over three decades of international professional experience as a management consultant and senior executive, combined with his academic experiences. Since 2005, Tim regularly consults with boards and senior management in various industries around the world. His clients have included numerous Fortune 500 and FTSE 100 companies, including Verizon, Harrods, UBS, Bank of America, and Cargill. Tim has authored five management books, which have been published in five languages, and is often featured in the media as a recognized expert on strategy formulation and execution, mergers and acquisition, workforce productivity improvement, organizational transformation, and culture change. Tim holds a PhD in organizational development from UCLA and is a former instructor of the National Outdoor Leadership School, also known as Knowles. So I'm really excited to be here today with Tim. And Tim, you have a really impressive career and one that has not been one note. And an aspect of your career that really interests me, if I'm remembering correctly, is that you had an early inspiration for how your career might play out. Can you share that story of what led you to teaching, getting a PhD, and how you thought you man might manage your career over time? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it, I really never thought I would be a professor growing up uh, in upstate New York. Um, I was the first one to go to school in my family, so I'm what they call first-generation uh, university. Uh, my parents um, never had a university degree, my older brother and sister. So I didn't really have a lot of guidance. I went to uh, state school in uh, New, York, uh, New York State uh, for my undergraduate Really didn't really know what I wanted to major in. You know, I wanted to go to university because that was the thing to do. Um, and we lived on a fairly diverse street. There was a doctor up on the corner, a couple teachers. Um, there was a mechanic that worked across the street. My dad worked at General Electric. And I saw my dad and the mechanic come home dirty every day from their work. And then the doctor and the teachers are kind of wearing nice clothes and look clean. I thought, well, you know, maybe I want to work with my brain rather than my hands. So I went to university, um, but without a lot of guidance, without a lot of um, 
knowledge of the requirements, that sort of thing. I was actually failing out my freshman year. And one of the professors I had taken um, took me under his wing. He saw that I was failing out and, you know, they were going to send me home. Uh, but they put me on academic probation and said I could stay for one more year, but I had to get my grades up. And so the professor took me under his wing, uh, you know, uh, really turned my life around. I took a few classes of his, um, ended up collecting different courses over the four years I was doing my undergrad, um, not in any one major. So I ended up as what they call a diversified or a, a liberal arts major. Um, but it positioned me well for all kinds of different options in my career. You know, I had a little bit of uh, social sciences. I had some hard sciences. I had mathematics, you know, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up, but I thought, you know, the person that turned my life around, uh, he was a really good professor, be, you know, became an inspiration for me. And I thought, you know, I'd like to do what he does. Uh, so I asked him about becoming a professor and he told me about the whole, you know, master's and PhD thing, uh, did some research on that, did my master's right after my undergraduate, and then did my PhD at UCLA uh, to finish up. So I went straight through undergrad, master's, PhD. And as I was graduating, uh, finishing my dissertation, I started thinking, well, the best professors I had had some work experience. So I thought I'd go out and get some work experience, uh, you know, be a better professor in the classroom because I could bring some of that work experience into my teaching. And I had my billion dollars of student loans, as many of us do in the U.S., especially after 10 years of university. So uh, I thought, you know, I'd pay off some student loans, make a bit of money and come back. And I thought I'd do it for three or four years. And then I got sucked into, you know, I started out at Hughes Aircraft. I was a project manager there, you know, big aerospace engineering company, um, big bureaucratic environment. It was good to get that experience and knowledge about how big corporations work. But I knew I didn't want to do that my entire career. So a friend of mine at UCLA who was doing his MBA while I was doing my doctorate, um, was out doing consulting for a little boutique firm out of Long Beach, California, uh, doing retail operations, strategy, customer service improvement. And they had about 30 or 40 consultants in the US and they were had a project in London. And he called me and said, you know, we're going to go do this project, uh, him and another guy. We need a third guy. Do you want to go? And if we can sell business, we can start an office and start a business in London. I'd never been overseas. I didn't have a passport at the time. So, you know, a month later, I had my passport, my bags were packed, and we were moving to London with a project, a mobile phone and a flat. And so, um, you know, we didn't know we had a six-month project. I ended up there for almost five years. Uh, we sold that business to Arthur Anderson, lived in Germany with them for a year, didn't like Arthur Anderson. Uh, so I left, came back to the States, worked for Booz Allen, doing strategy for a couple of years. Um, from there, I got headhunted, became the head of uh, mergers and acquisitions globally for Watson Wyatt Worldwide, which is now Willis Towers Watson. Uh, from there, in 2001, I set up a business again uh, on my own with a business partner of mine in Chicago doing mergers and acquisitions consulting, sold that in 2005, which freed me up to do what I'm doing now is teaching. Um, and I've never looked back. I, I really liked the professor thing. Uh, it took me longer to get in, into the academic environment or back into it than I thought it would, you know, after I got sucked into the consulting, traveling the world, the money that goes with it. Um, and 
but now I like the lifestyle. You know, my own bed got to be nicer in a hotel room. So uh, I still consult on the side, as you mentioned. I started in 2005. I still consult, uh, do you know, two, three, four projects a year. Usually strategy, mergers and acquisitions work um, with the companies that you mentioned. Other companies uh, work the Newmont Mining acquisition uh, last year. Uh, yeah, last year which was one of the biggest deals of the year last year. So, you know, it keeps my feet wet in the real world and, you know, helps me bring uh, relevant information into the classroom. So. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Thanks for that overview. I want to go back just a little bit. I'm curious, what made you decide to uh, focus on organizational development as your focus area when you got your PhD? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, when I was looking at, you know, what my background in education had provided me. So this liberal arts, like I mentioned, had all kinds of broad range of topics, subjects that I had studied at an undergrad. Uh, master's level, I did a master's in management. So, you know, it was basically how you analyze and run businesses as, you know, most masters in management are. And then I thought, you know, when I was doing a PhD, I really... Uh, didn't want to do a pure economics kind of PhD because that's just a lot of economic analysis and, uh, you know, where the economy is going and try to predict all that. Uh, but I really thought, you know, how, how do organizations improve and how do you, you know, how do you implement strategy? How do you make change happen? And organization development's all about that. It's kind of a mix of uh, strategy uh, organization change, analytics, uh, business psychology. So it, it kind of mixes a lot of different disciplines like my undergraduate did. And so it was really interesting to me. I'm, you know, I like uh, diversity of thought. I like diversity of challenge. And organization development just uh, was something that provided that to me. Yeah, that's interesting. And then you said you jumped to the corporate world and then to consulting. I didn't realize like your first gig in consulting, um, you know, was starting the office, going to London, all of that. Uh, what can you say a little bit more about what attracted you to the consulting world and, and kept you in it for so long? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I moved to London, it was three of us doing this one project uh, with a big retail company. And then we met the senior team at Harrods and they liked us and hired us. Um, and it was all about business improvement. You know, we were helping them set their strategy. Uh, they wanted to improve customer service to get revenue up, you know, serve customers better, uh, streamline their operations to get costs down. So there's a, a strategy element to what we were doing, but there was really a, an execution element. So how do we, you know, get the strategy implemented. And that was all about the people. Uh, we could do all the analytics we wanted and show how the strategy was going to improve revenue, reduce costs, you know, streamline processes, all the process flows, all that analytical work. But at the end of the day, the people on the front line, the customer service people, the department managers, the store managers, they all had to get on board. So that was the psychological element, the behavioral element. And so I got to apply everything I was learning in my uh, PhD program and my undergrad master's actually. Um, so I was actually applying what I learned in university. Um, 
but I was also learning what I was doing. So I learned what worked. I learned what didn't. I learned that, you know, the theory says one thing, but the practice is really different sometimes, often. Uh, and, you know, just the challenge of uh, making change happen in an organization as a consultant, you don't have any position power. So you have uh, influence power, you influence the senior team, you influence middle management, influenced employees. Uh, and I like that challenge of, you know, seeing the actual implementation of what we were developing and designing on paper. Uh, and then changing projects, even though I was at, at actually Harrods was a client of mine for three years. Um, we did three different projects. So each project's a bit different, uh, you know, a different focus, the players are different in each project. Um, the outcomes and expectations are often changing. So you're always learning while you're doing. That's one thing I like about consulting. The challenge is always there because it's always a new project, um, often a new company. So I, besides Harrods, I worked with Galleries Lafayette over in Paris, Cadeve in Germany, um, the Burton Group in the UK, Safeway UK, a bunch of others. So you're always changing companies. Uh, even though the projects may be similar, the companies are different and the challenges are different. So, uh, you know, I love learning. Consulting is learning on steroids and you get paid to do it, which is a wonderful thing. Yeah, I would, I would concur with that. <laughs> Having other people pay for your learning. That's really, that's a, that's a good model. <laughs> so I'm curious then when, when yeah, once you, yeah, when, when did you, so I know you said like you started to get, like, get, uh, like being in your own bed, like, but what was the trigger or how did you really know when it was time for you to be like, okay, I'm ready to kind of put consulting aside for now. I'm ready to go ahead and move into teaching. What was kind of the signal for you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd always had an eye on it, right? Because that's what I originally did my PhD to become a professor at some point. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, I was doing a lot of presentations over the years, uh, you know, as a kind of global leader of a business, I was doing a lot of presentations around the world, my books, I would present on my books, content of my books. Um, you know, it was a marketing thing for the firm, but it was also, you know, um, getting me out in front of the public uh, to represent the firm, but also get my ideas across and, and that sort of thing that were in my books. Um, and I had a lot of people that would come up to me afterwards and say, you know, uh, I see you have a PhD. I'm from the University of Michigan or I'm at Stanford or wherever. And have you thought about teaching? And I said, yeah, but not right now. You know, I was still enjoying consulting, enjoying the travel, that sort of stuff. Um, and I also realized, though, I wasn't doing pure academic research. So uh, I was writing some articles, I was writing books, but they're based on case examples and tools and templates I was building and using with my clients that worked. Uh, and there were some new tools and templates I had developed uh, and, you know, we're, we're getting traction in the marketplace. A couple of my books became bestsellers. So uh, it was really something that when I sold that business in 2005, you know, I was talking to a couple firms about a partnership again. Uh, I was talking to another big firm actually over in the Middle East about becoming head of strategy. I went through their whole interview process, but I thought, you know, do I really want to jump back on the treadmill? You know, I made a bit of money from the sale of that uh, little boutique firm that I was running with a, my business partner. Uh, you know, I didn't really, my lifestyle, I didn't, 
accumulate a lot of, uh, you know, debts that you have to worry about paying off. So, you know, uh, no debt is freedom often. Uh, and, you know, I, I wasn't looking at paying for private schools for kids and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So uh, I basically gave myself the option to change careers and dial back my lifestyle and income uh, significantly. Uh, and, you know, money is a currency, but time is also a currency. And so, you know, when I saw the time and flexibility that the academic lifestyle provided, uh, that's been a currency that was really attractive. So I thought I'd try it for a year. Uh, I talked to the University of Dallas. I was living in Dallas at the time. And a friend of mine said, you know, they like guys like you with, uh, you know, PhD with an academic credential, but with work experience. And there was an HBR article in 2005 called How Business Schools Lost Their Way, talking about how they became too academic and too research-oriented, that they should have some professionals teaching. And the University of Dallas was actually mentioned in that article as having the right model. Um, so there was a couple other schools mentioned as well. And so I met with the dean and he said, yeah, we like people like you with, you've got the academic credential, you've done some writing, but not pure academic writing. And, you know, so you're academically qualified, but you're also a practitioner. Um, do you want to start and work for us? And I said, sure. When? And he said, well, in two weeks. And I said, okay, sure. Uh, I, you know, I just sold that business a month or two before I was doing a little bit of consulting on my own for a company up in Silicon Valley. Um, but that project was going to run out in about a month or so. And I said, sure, I'll be available. And uh, so two weeks later, I started teaching. I uh, thought I'd try it for a year or two, see how it went. It was a big MBA program at the University of Dallas, a lot of part-time students doing their MBA while they're working. So I really enjoyed it. They seemed to learn a lot and I got good feedback. Um, and I could still consult on the side because I had the flexibility in my schedule. Uh, you know, like I said, to keep my feet wet in the real world, little extra income, that kind of stuff. Um, but I was doing it because I wanted to, not because I had to, and I could travel when I wanted, not because I had to travel. Uh, so it just, you know, the lifestyle change and the currency of flexibility and time outweighed the, uh, you know, the monetary currency. Yeah, that's great. I'm curious how you, you know, you didn't really talk about during the consulting years, it being a grind or you getting burnt out. And I think a lot of people, I know I've experienced this, see, and I'm, I'm, I would love to hear a little bit more about that. And the other thing that's interesting though, is then switching to teaching, being attracted to that kind of dialing back, having the flexibility of time. But I can imagine for a lot of people, there being a challenge in terms of a mental shift or how does that feel to kind of step back or to, you know, even from an identity perspective, you're still a professor, you're still consulting on the side, but you're like, you know, perhaps not doing the big M&A deals that you were doing or like, so I'm curious how you manage that shift or, you know, I'll, I'll probably probe a little bit more on the kind of like, just the, the avoiding burnout perhaps and how you successfully did that, but. Yeah, that's, you know, something in consulting, there's two reasons people leave. One, uh, well, three, uh, you, you just underperform, right? You're not cut out for it. So you get coached out or you realize it yourself and you leave. Um, but really, you know, the other ways are uh, the burnout lifestyle. So the continuous travel, um, long hours, uh, you know, working in 
into night, all night kind of stuff. Um, so you got to be careful of that. Uh, but, you know, that being said, it used to be the corporate guys stayed at home and the consultants traveled. But, you know, because corporations have operations all over the world now, they're traveling as much as the consultants were. So it's hard to avoid travel these days, even in a corporate environment. Um, and also part of the burnout is not being able to have relationships. So when you travel so much, you know, five days a week, seven days a week, sometimes if you're staying at the client over the weekend to get important board meetings, stuff together or whatever, um, <clears throat> you, uh, you know, you don't get to, you know, play in the softball league on a Tuesday night and you don't get to, ha you know, hug your kids all week. If you have kids, uh, you know, if you got a wife or a girlfriend or a husband or uh, boyfriend, whatever, um, you just don't get to see them only on the weekends. Uh, and, you know, some people are okay with that, but a lot of uh, people, you know, that doesn't work. So uh, you got to understand what the lifestyle is. Whenever I tell somebody, you know, that asked me about consulting, I say it's learning on steroids. You get paid well to learn. Um, you're always challenged. It's intellectually stimulating. A lot of good things about it. But the downside is the lifestyle. At first, you know, you're traveling the world on somebody else's money. And, uh, you know, you go to some exciting places sometimes, New York, San Francisco, Tokyo, you know, uh, London, wherever. But other times you're going to, uh, and no offense to Des Moines, Iowa, but, you know, I've spent six months in Des Moines and it's okay, but, you know, it's certainly not New York or San Francisco so uh, or Hong Kong. Um, so, you know, you often don't get to choose where you go. Uh, how long you stay there. And you're often just seeing a hotel room in an office and a taxi or a rental car back and forth. So it's not glamour travel often. Um, so you got to understand what you're getting into. Uh, focus on the learning part of it. Uh, you know, what you're getting out of it, the psychic income from that intellectual stimulation uh, keeps you from getting the burnout. Um, but a lot of consultants will leave, go work for a client um, so they don't have to travel as much. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, that's, you got to manage that burnout. That's, that's really important. For me, it wasn't that big of an issue for a long time. Right. And then, so once you did have this experience switching to teaching, you then pretty much stuck with that. And so you didn't necessarily go back. Did you get um, once you started to experience having that additional time and the flexibility, did you get attracted to that and that became something that became a motivator to stay on that track? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've got to change your lifestyle if you dial your income back, uh, you know, unless you cashed out in a big way. Um, and, you know, I, I had to make that mental adjustment to um, it's a much slower pace. So I had to, you know, slow my focus down. Um, it's also, you know, the lifestyle is a bit different. You're, uh, you got to manage your income a little bit differently than you do when you're making partner income in a consulting firm. Uh, you, uh, but, you know, life changes as you get, a, you know, as you go through your career and you get a bit older and you age a bit. Uh, there's no book called Half-Life essentially talks about you spend the first half of your life trying to make money, second half trying to make a difference. And that describes my career to a T. You know, I spent that first half trying to make money and the second half, you know, trying to make a difference. This is my give back time in my career. 
Um, I actually tell students about that at the beginning of every class. I have, you know, my little PowerPoint slide that says Half-Life is the title of the slide. Tells a bit about my career and how I did that career flux uh, in 2005, got out of consulting and into academia. Um, and I, you know, describe the half-life and this is my give back time. Um, and so, you know, I get a lot of intellectual stimulation and challenge from the academic environment and a lot of satisfaction reward when, you know, a student sends me an email, you know, a month later after they graduate or three years after they graduate say, you know, I'm still applying what you, you know, I learned in your classes, or I got this job because of what you told us about how to do an interview and, you know, that sort of thing in a case, um, you know, uh, how to present well and all that. So, you know, that's a, that's a reward, you know, sure. I can, I got rewarded monetarily, but also my clients were successful at their mergers. Um, so that was good to see them, you know, get held up in the media as doing a great M and a because of the work I did. Um, but I get just as much satisfaction when one of my students says, you know, I really learned a lot and I'm applying it in my job, or I got promoted because of what, you know, you taught me how to do a presentation to senior management. And, um, you know, I got a promotion because of it. That's just as rewarding as, you know, company X doing a great merger, uh, even more rewarding because, you know, company X is going to make money anyway, because they're so big. That's how they just by inertia, they'll continue to do well often. Yeah, part of what you're describing, for me, I have a, a pillar of sustainable ambition I call right aspiration that talks about, or I think about it as our, both our satisfaction with work and in our ambition can flex over time. It really can ebb and flow and change, and especially across the decades. And I kind of sense that that's part of what you're talking about. And I was curious if you could say a little bit more, when you think about your own satisfaction and or ambition over these like periods of your career how do you how have you seen that arc kind of take shape yeah i mean your priorities change uh things change you, you know uh you kind of been there done that so um sometimes a little boredom might kick in you know after you've done something or after i've done something for kind of a three to five year cycle i'm like okay i've learned what i can learn in that role or in that situation. So now it's time to change, um, you know, to kind of read, uh, to jumpstart my motivation again. And that's worked for me. You know, the three, some people it lasts longer, you know, my sister's the kind of 20, 30 year loyalist to a company. Uh, so we're very different in that way. Um, but, you know, so it's different uh, for each individual. Uh, if you are the kind of person that likes to learn and that you got to set your life in uh, your career up to be able to be flexible. You got to continually educate yourself, learn new uh, material techniques, whatever it might be. Uh, so that whole continuous learning, uh, don't get yourself locked in to a certain lifestyle that you can't get yourself out of. I've had a lot of people say, Oh, I'd like to, you know, start teaching or doing that. I was like, yeah. And, you know, friends of mine, I'm like, yeah, that's great. But um, you know, it's going to take you a while to do a PhD if you want to become a professor, um, or if you, even if you just want to, you know, use your master's degree, you can still teach in a community college or whatever. Um, but the income isn't going to be there because, you know, they've got the kids in private school, the big houses, you know, multiple houses, the cars, all that kind of stuff. So you got to set your life up to be flexible as well. 
you know, and they didn't set their, they set their life up to stay on that track, that treadmill, as I call it. So. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's where I think people just, we need to shine a little bit of more of a light on that, just because I don't think people are often planning ahead or looking ahead. And just like you said, setting up their life so that they can have that flexibility later on. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a really wise counsel. Um, I'm curious, as you kind of look back at the arc of your career, Tim, if there's anything that surprises you or like a, a, the biggest surprise you kind of had over the course of your career so far? That's a good question. Um, I would say, you know, the biggest thing is there's no one key to success. You know, they're always like, these books that the key to success or this key to success, that article, you know, will say something. Um, it's different for different people. So it's a combination of different things. There's a little bit, you know, luck is what's the old saying. Luck is when opportunity and preparation meet. So, you know, you prepare, you choose a path when you're, you know, 18, 19 majoring in whatever you major in university, uh, you know, kind of set you on a path. Uh, but I've also seen that there are people that change, you know, I have, physicians in my MBA program, musicians, uh, all kinds of different people from around the world in the MBA program here at Oxford. And uh, they're doing career changes. I've had neuroscientists that, you know, don't want to do neurosurgery anymore uh, or neurosurgeons. Um, and, they, you know, they're doing a business degree. So I'm like, okay, interesting. Uh, so the, the surprise is really the amount of opportunity out there um, that can come your way, but you also have to make your way. So you've got to kind of, you know, meet the opportunity when it arises. Um, so again, that's that continuous learning, um, you know, keeping yourself open to ideas, the network you build, um, you know, always trying to keep yourself current and read about trends in the news and uh, different industries. Uh, and then being willing to take a risk, you know, because, and try something, try it for a year, try it for two. If you like it, great. If you don't, you know, uh, as long as it, uh, you know, doesn't kill you, you can go and try, you go back to what you're doing before, try something else. So, um, but that's been my biggest surprise is, and there's been studies on it too. It's not what you necessarily major in in university. You know, there's a lot of people doing stuff that don't even have university, you know, Steve Jobs, uh, Gates, Zuckerberg, they're all dropouts, you know, so, um, and they're do they've done pretty well for themselves as, as dropouts. Uh, and, you know, I've known people that, you know, trained for certain things and then decided to do something completely different. And so, uh, you know, there's always options. That's been my biggest surprise. There's always an option. Yeah. It may not be an immediate option. It may take months. It may take a year or two or more. But there's always an option. Um, so, yeah. I love that. And keeping just, there's always possibility and different choices people can make or moves they can make. So that's great. I'm curious, you may, you mentioned your role at Oxford and I'd wanted to, you've mentioned that it's, it's like your dream job. And so what do you think about being in that role now at this stage in your career and having landed that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it was a little, uh, Dumb luck, foresight, serendipity all kind of came together at the right time. You know, it was, like I said, that kind of laying the groundwork, doing my PhD early in my career, uh, 
writing a few articles, then putting out some books, um, doing my speaking, um, the consulting, it all kind of came together. Uh, you know, I started out at University of Dallas, not a super highly ranked school, decent school, it was okay. Went to Colorado State, taught there for four years. Um, and then Oxford came along and I fit the profile of what they were looking for at that time. Um, you know, they call me the experiment because I'm not, uh, I am a full faculty member. I run the MBA program, but um, I'm not a full research professor. I'm, I, that's not the stage of the career, my career I was at. I told them, you know, I'm what they call clinical in the U.S. Clinical professor is there for teaching and not research. Um, there's only a few at different schools. Some schools don't even hire clinicals. So I'm the first one they've tried at Oxford and it seemed to work. Um, and so, you know, from, it's a super brand as we know, I, you know, I was, and, you know, so I'd like the diversity we have here. That's a great thing. We have, you know, in our MBA program, over 60 countries represented from around the world. Uh, obviously multiple languages, multiple viewpoints, multiple industries. Uh, it's academic Disneyland, you know, 39 Nobel or you know, 79 Nobel prize winners at the university or over the years. Uh, and, you know, so every conversation you have keeps you on your toes. You know, you're not having a dull conversation, pretty much anyone. Uh, and uh, whether student or faculty and, uh, you know, so I'm always learning again, learning on steroids again, like consulting was. Uh, and, you know, from my background, my history, as I mentioned, I was first generation. There's very few of us here at Oxford, even in the student ranks. Uh, so I actually mentor a student who's first generation. His father was a taxi driver uh, near Birmingham. And he's, you know, uh, presented to the UN and that sort of thing now. So uh, as an undergrad, so I'm really proud of what he's doing because I can see myself in him. I see myself, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, and so, yeah, there's kind of a spiritual element to it. You know, my grandparents moved to America with no money in their pocket, the whole immigrant thing. I came back to, Eng they moved from England, actually. Um, my father's parents, my mother's parents moved from Italy, some half Italian, half English, but they, you know, they moved from, uh, you know, very low income, very, uh, you know, low paying jobs. My grandfather worked in a pub when he was in a teenager and moved to America. And two generations later, I get to be an Oxford professor. So, yeah. That's pretty remarkable. Out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you often get teaching awards. And, you know, you talked about the fact that you have your your work experience, your consulting experience working with businesses, and you're able to bring that into the classroom. And you are a wonderful mentor to a lot of students. So I'm curious if I can pick your brain a little bit and ask you, you know, when you think about advice you might give to people say in their 20s or 30s or 40s, those different stages of their career, what advice might you share? Yeah, I mean, the first one is, uh, you know, always be curious, right? And you hear that a lot, always be curious. But some people say, oh, I'm curious. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. I've seen you in class. You don't ask a lot of questions, that kind of stuff. Maybe they are, but they aren't outwardly curious. So, um, you know, but just be a sponge for learning in all kinds of different ways, you know, read the news, uh, you know, read some articles, talk to people, always be learning, ask, you know, ask questions rather than, uh, you know, we all know these people, the EOEs, the experts on everything, they have an opinion on this and they know that. 
I like people to ask questions more than have answers because they're the interesting ones, right? They're, they're the ones that are stimulate. And if you ask the right question, you stimulate all kinds of good answers just by asking the right question. And that's how I teach, right? I ask a bunch of questions. I don't stand up and lecture and give a bunch of answers. And students give me that feedback. They're like, I like that you ask us questions and we have to think for ourselves and we learn from each other. You give your opinion, you know, as part of the discussion, but really you just ask a bunch of really good questions about the, whatever topic it is. And so ask questions, be curious, um, you know, don't lock yourself into a lifestyle I mentioned earlier. And then do what you love and money will follow. That's another old book that's been around for a long time. Uh, you know, and what you love may change. Like for me, it changes every, you know, few years, five years. When I say, you know, from a company to an industry, uh, consulting to academia. Uh, so, you know, if you're doing what you really enjoy, uh, you're going to be better at it. You put more time into it. You put more energy into it. You're just going to be more motivated by it. So, and that will show in your performance. Uh, and then, you know, the last piece of advice is the old PIE model. Of, it's an old book, you know, the PIE career model, performance, image, and exposure. And the research in the book talks about, you know, really about 10% of your career success is performance. There's a lot of good people out there. When I got out there, I saw people from MIT and Stanford that were doing spreadsheets that I would never even think of doing, you know, the macros they were writing and things. I was like, okay, I'm never going to out, you know, uh, quant those people, you know, they were just quantitatively better than I was ever going to be. Um, one, they had a much deeper interest in it and two, They were just good at it, really good at it. And I thought, well, okay, we'd work all night on the quant stuff, doing the spreadsheets and all that and the analytics. And then somebody would have to present it. And they're like, oh, Tim, you can present it because you're good at presenting. I was like, okay, now I found my niche, right? I understand the quant stuff, but I can communicate it better than they can because uh, they just didn't like it. That wasn't their skill set. Um, it's helped me in my teaching, obviously, getting up in front of a group. Uh, so, you know, find what you're really good at. And if you're really good at quant, great. And if you're really good at presenting, great. Um, so yeah, just that whole idea, the image and exposure, uh, you know, get yourself out. Cause as you go up the pyramid, that bottom, you know, entry level is all about typically technical skill, entry level stuff. And there's a lot of good people that come out of good universities, good training programs, whatever it might be. And they're going to be able to do, you know, whatever technical skill they're being hired for. There'll be a hundred good engineers or a hundred good marketers or a hundred good, uh, you know, um, uh, scientists, whatever it might be. But, you know, at some point, they're going to look for somebody to promote to manage that hundred engineers, scientists, marketers. And, you know, that is a different skill set than doing the science or doing the engineering. It's leading those engineers. It's problem solving, decision making, communication, coaching. Those. So as you go up the pyramid, the skill set requirement changes. And uh, so you got to work on those leadership skills uh, because the quant and the technical skills will get you the entry level into the game. But to get you know to the top of the pyramid, it's about communication, decision-making, motivation, coaching, uh, you know, your network. So that image and that exposure that you build um, really gets you to the tip of the pyramid in the C-suite, as they call it, you know, the 
chief, the CFO, the CIO, uh, head of HR, head of operations, marketing, whatever. Um, and so, yeah, you know, work on more than just your technical skill. Being good technically, it's solid, but, you know, that's not going to get you to the tip of the pyramid typically. Yeah, that's great. All great advice. I mean, frankly, all throughout this conversation. So one of the things I, I see too, and what you're, you, what you've been sharing is focus on learning. Um, so that's one t- key takeaway that I, I think um, listeners can, can, you know, really think about applying and bring in, and that links back to the curiosity that you mentioned. So we're running, we're starting to get close on time. So I want to close out with a few what I call rapid fire questions. I'll try not sure. to respond and uh, in between uh, other than with acknowledgement. But the first one is, how do you define success for yourself? For me, it's learning. It always has been. You know, people ask that in an interview and I'll tell them, look, you know, I'm here to learn. I want to learn. I, as long as I'm learning, doing interesting work uh, and adding value to the organization, uh, if I get paid well to do that, you know, the money will follow, but I'm not here for the money. Of course, I'm not going to do it for free, but, uh, you know, I'm here to learn and add value. Uh, so I'll get something out of it. I'll learn. You'll get something out of it. I'll add value, hopefully a lot of value. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, the money will take care of itself and we can talk about that later. What's the best career advice you ever received? Yeah, I think it was, you know, this idea of do what you love and the money will follow. Uh, You know, it's a trite phrase, but there's a lot behind it. So I just find I'm more motivated when I'm doing stuff I like to do. And when I get either bored of it or don't like it anymore, either because of the people or the environment or whatever has changed, or I've just done it long enough to where I'm, you know, learn what I can learn. that it's time for a change. So, and then I'll find something else that I love and the money will follow from there. So it's all about, you know, doing, doing what you love. Uh, and not everything's, you know, going to be roses and perfect, right? There's everything has warts. So when I say, you know, uh, do what you love, that's why they call it work. You get paid to do it. Right. So, um, you know, but focus on the good things, focus on the learning focus on, you know, whatever you're getting out of it. Um, and yeah, that's not what I would say. Right. What's the best life advice you ever received? Nothing lasts forever. You know, I learned that a long time ago. Uh, you know, you, you lose family members, um, you know, nobody's around forever, including ourselves. So, you know, you got to enjoy the time with the people that you care about, family, friends. Um, you know, that's why I've stayed in touch with obviously Jess and yourself for many years because, uh, you know, just important people in my life and my family. Uh, and I know I'm not around forever. So, you know, you got to enjoy every minute. Yeah, it's great. How do you like to take a break or pause? Mm, that changes, you know, it depends. Uh, you know, Staying physically healthy is a good thing. So doing my exercise, uh, you know, so uh, because that relates to mental as well. I'm mentally sharper when I stay physically fit. Um, so that's always been important to me. So going out for a run, doing, you know, an exercise routine, just to, you know, uh, kind of get your head straight and and your body fit. So that's always been big for me. Um, spending time with friends, family, you know, the people I want to spend time with. Um, 
again, I like learning. So, you know, the movies I watch or a television series or whatever, uh, or something I read, there's always got to be some sort of educational element to it, like a historical thing, even if it's a drama, uh, you know, some scientific angle on it, sci-fi, whatever it might be. Cause you know, I feel like I'm learning even though I'm vegging out a bit. So, yeah. That's great. What's your best time saving or productivity tip? Take advantage of the technology available to us. You know, the smartphones and the laptops are awesome, but they do extend the day. So to 24 seven. So you got to set aside time to just get away from them. Uh, and, you know, uh, that just there's certain things you need to be detail oriented about, but most of it, you don't need to worry about the details. They'll take care of themselves, but you got to understand the things that need the detail focus. And then the rest of it, I think too many people try to get, you know, into the detail, the weeds uh, of pretty much everything. And then before you know it, they're just, their time is gone. So they can't figure out where did all their time go on. Well, you're focused on the detail of the everything. You got to have priorities, basically. Prioritize. Yeah. And pull up, I'm hearing you say. Yeah. Final question is just, what's one thing you can't live without? Mm, besides oxygen? Um, learning. You know, that's been the theme of my discussion, obviously. Yeah, when I'm not learning, I feel like I'm dying. So it's time to relive again, regenerate my life and start learning. Yeah, it's so. great. Wonderful. Well, Tim, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much. As you know, I can always talk to you for a lot longer and I probably kept you longer than I anticipated, but we're out of time. So um, thank you again for being with me today. I really appreciate it and sharing all of your wisdom with me and my listeners. Thank you so much. Anytime and good luck with the video series. And I'm sure I'll be speaking with you and Jess soon. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.